Hello, this is A.R. Bernard, and welcome to my podcast. My objective, it's simple, to create a platform where you can be educated, informed, and inspired as you navigate the intersection of faith and culture. If you have no faith, maybe you'll find it here. So, thanks for tuning in. I'm going to say something inspired by the service so far. I'm going to say something that's going to get us all in trouble. Should I say it? Yes. Now, that was weak. Some of y'all saying, don't say it, don't say it. Should I say it? Yes. I'm going to say it anyway. Devil, we're back. See, some of y'all understand that statement. Some of you, what's the big deal? You'll find out. I mean, you, you have to understand how annoyed he is with what went on in here, just up to this part of the service. How many understand what I'm talking about? When he can squeeze you and press you and all he gets out of you is praise, worship, and prayer and good deeds, what's he going to do with someone like you? And it's our job to keep sending him back to the drawing board. Amen. Can I get an amen in here? Because we are here to the praise and glory of God. Before I go into the Word, I want to talk a little bit about a book, an interview, one of my family members. And it is a blessing. I mean, it was pointed out earlier that four of my sons are sitting in service, and I'm glad to have them here. The dad, we're going to come all together at the same time. Pastor Jamal is preaching out at the Long Island campus, but it is so good to see them on the front row there of their own volition. And not that they don't know the Lord, but when you pray for revival, revival happens all over the place. And how many want revival in your family? How many want renewal in your family? Yeah, we're not just going to be selfish about it, amen, but we want it to touch every aspect of our lives, and it's amazing the revival and renewal and the spirit of renewal that is happening in uh, my family in many, many different ways, but especially amongst my sons, my grandchildren uh, as well, and I would love for them to share with you what God is doing in their hearts and minds and lives. But I'm going to give them some time to prepare because they had no idea that I would even suggest bringing them up before you and interrogating them. So now they have to come back together at the same time, the same service. Amen? Is that cool, guys? Yeah. All right, you got it. I got the thumbs up. I asked their permission just out of ceremony. <laughs> I'm old school. But over the last eight years, 
my family and many of the families in our church have experienced the loss of a loved one. Within that eight-year span, we lost Pastor Karen's brother, our son, his brother-in-law. We lost another son. And you would think that, you know, when you're a Christian, and I'm going to talk about this in my message, you, you are somehow exempt from all of the realities of human experience. But how many know we're not exempt? Yeah. As I was sitting there, actually standing there during communion and just looking at the church, looking at you, us, the church, and I said, wow, what a brilliant idea. How many know that a marriage license is working papers. Some of y'all still didn't wake up yet. I'm going to give you... How many, how many are married and know what I'm talking about? See? All right. How many know it's working papers? Yeah. You're put into the crucible. And you can't just walk away. You shouldn't. But it forces you to work out life with another person. How many know that that's not easy? That can be quite challenging. But marriage puts you in a context where you're forced to work out life with another person. And usually, we didn't graduate with a degree to do that. We end up in the context because I'm in love. That is funny. But I thought about how God uses marriage to describe the relationship between Jesus and the church. So as I was standing there, I was just reflecting on the brilliance of the church and community because what God did was save people and then put them in a context to work through their spiritual life. To butt heads with each other, to have conflicts with each other, to say praise the Lord. That's why I tell new members, I said, you're not a new member when you join and sign the application and finish the new members program. You're a new member when you have a run-in with the parking lot attendant, the usher, another congregant, or some other staff member, and it's a bad situation, and you decide to stay. Now you're a member of Christian Cultural Center. How many understand, but that's really where the rubber meets the road. Because it's easy to come in here and say, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. But it's not until that praise the Lord is challenged in the inevitable friction of human relationships that we really determine how committed we are. And it's true in marriage as well. Amen? Not until the marriage goes in crisis that the level of commitment becomes tested. But we are not exempt from the realities of human existence and human experience. In fact, Jesus entered human experience to feel what we feel, to experience what we experience. And that's why the shortest verse in the Bible is so powerful. How many are familiar with the shortest verse in the Bible? And Jesus wept at the tomb of Lazarus. 
I think he wept because, number one, they were close friends. He and Lazarus, Lazarus and family. But also because he saw the outcome of the fall of humanity and that he himself would trust his father as he entered that same outcome to deliver him, to free him from that inevitable outcome. How we deal with loss, how we grieve, is not a one-size-fits-all. So if ever you're in a situation where you are suffering the loss of a loved one, don't let anybody tell you how you're supposed to grieve. There is no supposed to. Because we all grieve differently. We're different in personality, different in temperament, different in so many ways. Some people can compartmentalize it and then move on and then deal with it that way. And some people, now, that grief should not destroy you. It should be productive grief, positive grief. Amen? And why I bring this up, that may sound morbid, but out of death comes life. Oh, wait, 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 wait. Are you all Christians in here? On the third day, what happened, folks? What are we going to celebrate on Easter? The resurrection. So with us, out of every death comes what? That's the Christian way. That's the Christian life. That's how we think. That's how we understand. So whenever we suffer loss or death, we know that God's going to bring what out of it? Life. He even said, Jesus, except the kernel of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abides alone. But if it falls into the ground and dies, it will bring forth much fruit. And that's a reality. And I say that because... When we lost our firstborn son, Alfonso, he was cut buddy to his brother-in-law, who's the husband of Arkell Cox. And I remember what we went through losing Dave first, and then followed by our son, Alfonso. And you hold on and you pray. How many know that's what we're supposed to do? We believe God for their body, and if that fails, we believe God for their soul. But we never stop believing God. So his wife, one of our daughter-in-laws, decided to take that grief and put it into positive energy to make something out of herself, and her life and using her husband's life as a foundation. And I had the opportunity to walk her through a lot of that and interview her about it. And she came up with an incredible idea, which she'll get to share with you, but also putting it in a readable book that talks about her journey. Arkel, come on up. escorted by her brother-in-laws who were loading her up with the tissue in advance. 
The other one just decided to bring the box. Just in case. Thank you, Sean. I appreciate that. <laughs> now, one of the things that having sons did was give me some incredible daughter-in-laws. The problem is they see themselves as my daughters. Dropping the in-laws. And my sons just have to deal with that. And like Pastor Karen would say, y'all don't have to tell me. I know my boys. And she takes the sides of the daughter-in-law. So that's just the way it works out. Arkel, thank you. Thank you. You have been on a, on a journey. We did a film. Um, of an interview with you that I thought was amazing. And I'm not talking about the, when you were on our, the Air Bernard television show, but I'm talking about the video that we first shot, remember? I remember. Yeah, years ago where you talked about, you know, just what that journey was like and the fact that there were other women that you were in relationship with and some that you ended up meeting as a result of your own journey, and they were widows. They lost their husbands, but they made a decision to do something. So I want to get to that, but first, let's talk about the book. The title of the book, Diamonds Are Forever. And, of course, the inside of that, I know what that means. Um, God bless Rihanna, but... Uh, <laughs> why? Why? forever is because a lot of you know my story but many of you don't my husband Dave was called Dave Diamond Cox because he had this very hold that mic up yeah. beautiful smile that just shined like diamonds right and so God makes no mistakes when Dave died the day that he died Rihanna came out with the song diamonds are for um shine bright like a diamond and so I felt like in writing this book, it was never to be published. It was never to be public. It was a book that I wanted to take my children and my nephews and my nieces on with me as to see how God has transformed me from this young woman growing up in Brooklyn and then meeting the love of my life and us building and thinking that we're going to have this perfect life. But God had other plans. And so I thought it was important for our children to know that I am who I am today because of Diamond. So that's why the book is called Diamonds Are Forever. But the subtitle is Becoming a Boss After Loss. Becoming a Boss After Loss. Now that makes me nervous. <laughs> In the time where we're seeing women with unprecedented wealth, education, and upward mobility, occupying positions of power in our society in numbers that we've never seen in American history. I'll just pause right there. What do you mean? Becoming a boss after loss. I had to pick up where Dave left off. When Dave passed away of stage four colorectal cancer, and by the way, this is National 
awareness of uh, this month for colorectal cancer. So I do ask everyone in here um, if there's a family history. I'm sorry, Daddy. Just got to say this public service announcement. If there is anyone in here with a family history of colon cancer, don't wait. Go to the doctor. Tell them that you need to make sure that you get a colonoscopy. Tell them what you're going through because nobody has to die from colon cancer. The polyps removed. It's the best seven to ten minutes of sleep and you go home, you go back to your families. Nobody has to deal with what my family had to deal with, right? So let's get back to why I'm becoming a boss after loss. So when Dave passed away, we were just starting out our lives. We were just building our businesses. And um, I thought that I was very instrumental in helping Dave with these businesses, but I really had no idea how much it entailed. So I had to now learn to do what he did, as well as raise our children and still carry on the family legacy that he had said that he was going to do for us. And so um, over the past 10 years, I've become a boss after loss. I've chosen to not stay in a place of pity or why me? It was always a purpose. And so my purpose was now to make sure that nobody dies of colon cancer as well as to carry out the family legacy for our children and to be that voice for other women who have unfortunately gone through what I'm, I've gone through. Yeah, so he's taken on the cause of colorectal cancer. But this is specifically for men because this is something, especially amongst men of color, all right? This is something that is preventable. This is something that you can get out in front of with screening, and especially early screening. And you have, you have done some events, whether, uh, also, also working with one hospital. Um, so I am working, I spoke at uh, Downstate SUNY on Friday. I had a symposium with them. I have been working very closely with them and a couple others in, um, here in Brooklyn. I thought it was very important that we go back to our communities and we explain, we teach, we educate our men and um, our women, because I find like our women, we are leaders in our homes, right? So we can force our men to go, our children, our brothers, our sisters. We need to band together and change the narrative. We need to change the narrative that, you know, as Pastor said, no one has to die from this cancer, but it's just knowing if the cancer is there. And that's only by getting a colonoscopy. So we also have to, years ago, 10 years ago, we all wore the blue shirts and we were in the lobby. And many of you signed our petitions to get the age of colorectal cancer dropped from 55 to 50. And I thank you for that. But now we need to go back to Washington, which I'll be there next week for colorectal cancer um, at the Capitol. But we need to go back and we need to say there is no age right? Because our men are getting this disease at 20 and 25 years old. So at that point, what does an age number mean? It means nothing. We just need to make sure that when you walk into that hospital and you say something like, I'm losing weight, I am constipated, I have blood in my stool. That's not a stigma. That's a sign. That's a sign that you need to get that colonoscopy done. No questions asked. So you can go home to your families. We've lost too many as a result of all of this. And again, say it, it's, it's avoidable. We can get out in front of a lot of the health issues that affect our community, especially, and I'm talking especially men of color, because you know what, we'll put it off, 
We're trying to be macho, strong, you know, all of that stuff, and we won't go see about ourselves. I mean, the women that do the same thing, but we are notorious for doing that. And to push screening, which you've, you, you've done, in fact, you, you, you've raised money just to pay for men to be able to get a free screening at a particular hospital. So, um, so De Dave's death is not in vain. I live this, right? It's just not something I do in the month of March. And so his foundation has given scholarships back to his high school, Bishop Lachlan. We've given scholarships back. Lachlan in the house. <laughs> um, and we also, I, I pretty much try to dedicate his foundation to being there for families who've been affected by colon cancer. So we usually pay for the colonoscopies if somebody can't, if I can't get the verbiage in there and kind of work it out for them to get a colonoscopy. His foundation will pay for a colonoscopy. We'll go with you. We'll talk to you. We'll walk you through it. And um, I feel like that is the purpose of his death is to save hundreds of thousands in one day millions of lives. Amen. Amen. So let's, in the few minutes we have left, let's talk about the business. What business? Which one? Which one? All right, you want to start big and go down, small and go up. There's so many. Um, I'm a real West Indian. We have 10 jobs, right? <laughs> um, no, well, Dave started um, a small little business in Brooklyn 17 years ago, IHOP. And so I own three IHOPs in Brooklyn, by the grace of God. Um, Dave built the first one on Livingston, and um, following his blueprint, his uh, blueprint, I print two more, and so that's the Church Avenue, shameless plug, Church Avenue and Flushing location, and so um, that is really the legacy of the family, because that was something that was really dear to Dave's heart, but I also, um, I sit on a board of trustees for colleges, I counsel, I speak, I just do it all, whatever needs to be done, so humbly speaking. I just do it. The book, you need to take a look at it because it really talks about her relationship with Dave and the journey of how she dealt with the pain, how she dealt with the hurt. And that is not always easy because it's not like you know what you're doing. It's not like she had some manual, opened it up, okay, act like this, talk like this, do this, do that. No, you're feeling your way. And you're trying to make sense of it. Hear from God. Get direction. Have the right people, right voices. Eliminate the wrong voices. I mean, it's just a, it's just, it's just a, it's a big process that you go through. But we are proud of you. And we want you to be an encouragement to all of the young ladies out there, sisters out there. You should be owning three of something. You should be stepping up and using your gifts, talents, and abilities, whether you're with your husband because he's still alive or whether you have had to move on because of, of that loss. And let me wrap up with this. Um, there needs to be a, a movie around this because there are other women, like I said, who are very successful. You're not going to mention their names, but they're very successful. And you guys all got together to support each other, each of you as widows, but each of you becoming 
a boss. After loss. After loss. I'm coming to a theater near you soon. <laughs> so, Diamonds Are Forever. This is the book. And where can we get the book? We can get the book um, on my website. And I guess we can put that up later. And it's also for sale here exclusively at CCC. Of course. We got we to gotta make that happen. And, and support you in what you do. Um, again, I know the journey. And the journey never ends. It continues uh, throughout life, and you pass it on. And she was left with uh, two daughters who are my, my dear grandchildren. And as much as my other daughter-in-law, Annette, um, left with, you know, two, two, two daughters and, and three boys. So we are a village still connected, raising children of the third generation and making sure those uncles are plugged in. And I love it because the grandchildren are holding the adults <clears throat> accountable. And that's exactly the way it's supposed to be. Arkel, thank you. We're proud of you. Okay, guys. You know, the Apostle Paul said we have many teachers, but not many fathers. I'll say it again. We have many what? Teachers, but not many fathers. I was in um, Albany two weekends ago, and I shared with you, I was there to address a service with the Black, Latino, and Asian Caucus. And we had an incredible morning service. I shared with you some photos, the altar call. It was just wonderful. But I went back to my hotel room to wait for the evening gala where I would be bringing the invocation. And as I sat there with about three hours to have a meal, change, and get ready. I flipped on the TV. I loved the news. And as I was flipping through, there was an ad for a documentary on Bill Cosby. How many have heard of Bill Cosby? Okay, if you haven't, you haven't been on the planet. You've been in a mountain somewhere. And I said, wow, this is interesting. I piqued my interest. So I was able to turn to it, get hold of it. And as I watched the beginning of it, because for whatever reason, the internet wasn't working well because it was a live streaming documentary, it started spooling about halfway through, and I just got fed up with it, and I shut it down. But I saw enough to see people of different races, ages, male, female. I mean, I saw an assortment of people giving their testimony. 
not just victims of Mr. Cosby, but people who were indirectly and directly associated with him or his work, people from various industries. And they were weighing in on him and all that happened around him. And as a father, in the familial sense of the word, and in the spiritual sense of the word, I have many spiritual sons and daughters. I got a few in here. I appreciate all 20 of you. You didn't know it. Your pastor is your spiritual father. Okay. Anyway, as I sat there watching, I, I couldn't get over the, the anger, the hostility, the resentment that was being expressed by the majority of the people who were giving their testimony. I was amazed by it. Some of them victims, okay, I get that, but others who were sort of removed and yet a part of it and providing commentary. But one consistent theme and tone emotionally was one of anger and resentment and hurt. And I had to ask the question, why were even people who didn't know him were not victimized by him, not associated with him in industry or in any way? Why was John Q. Citizen of the United States so angry and resentful of this man? And I realized it wasn't him. It's what he symbolized. He symbolized America's dad. Are y'all hearing me? He symbolized America's dad. And I had to step back and say, wow, a whole nation angry at a father. And that father's failure. Now, he was not blood father to the whole nation, but he symbolized something. I said, what is it about us as a nation that has a need for a father figure? Whether we talk about it or not, whether it's a subconscious role, but it was amplified in my mind the role of a father in the life of, 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 of the, 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 the nuclear family, right? Sons and daughters and, 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 and wife. But just the whole role of father and the need for father. Why is father so important? Why is it such a powerful element? And why is there such a need that not only on an individual personal level, but on a national level? And of course, 
You know the Lord's Prayer, right? How does it begin? So evidently, Father is so important that in Jesus teaching his disciples and us how to pray, it opens with that line, our Father. It fixes something. It establishes something intellectually, emotionally, motivationally, relationally when we think in terms of Father. I said, wow, we have individual men with a father wound. And we could have a whole nation with a father wound. You see, because we call the leaders of our nation, let's go back to the founders. We call them the founding what? Fathers. The president becomes the what? Father of the nation. And can you imagine when we have presidents who are fathers who are dysfunctional? It's like being in a home with a dysfunctional father. It creates a dysfunctional family. I didn't mean to go here today, but here we are. And I am now on a journey to understand this deep and profound need, but also the deep and profound wound caused by the absence of a father. And a father can be absent in many ways. He can be physically in the house and still absent. Emotionally absent, spiritually absent, intellectually absent, absent in many, many ways. But it speaks to a deep need that God designed us to have in response to a role. And not only did God present himself as father, he presented himself as son. So evidently we need to know both. And I thought about my own situation because it wasn't until my 50th birthday driving to work, to church. I was on the Grand Central Parkway reflecting on what I had achieved in life. And for the first time in my life, I stopped face to face with the realization that my father wasn't there. Because whole, my whole life, I just kind of compartmentalized it, put it aside. It is what it is. But why I thought about it is because while I was driving, I said, wow, this is what God has allowed me to accomplish in life. And all of a sudden, I realized I had no father to share it with. And the tears welled up. And I did what I do. Analyze, assess, compartmentalize. And moved on. But it stayed with me. Because two things happen when you don't have a father. You don't know how to be a father. (laughs) 
The second thing is, you don't know how to be a son. So you can't model either one to your own children. Unless you make an intentional effort to find out what does that mean. It was Christmas Eve this year, or last year, and our family gathered in our home. I get this right. It was Christmas Eve on Mom's birthday. Christmas Eve. Christmas Eve, right? I'm getting... Yeah, see, usually Pastor Karen is sitting there saying, <laughs> I got my boys. So I made a statement to my grandchildren. I said, listen. You may think that your parents are adults. But guess what? Even while they have you, they're still learning and growing. It's not as though they arrived on how to be parents and then had you. So you have to understand that they, like you, are also a work in progress. Because the children will think, well, why are my parents acting stupid? Why are my parents doing this? Why this? Why this? And, and because in their mind, since the parents are the adults, it means they've arrived. They've got it together. They know everything. Oh, no, we don't. And we fail to realize that both groups are still growing, learning, and depending upon what those parents were exposed to, that determines how they grow, how fast they grow, and the kind of growth. So, I'm on my journey to find out, to appreciate and understand and embrace what all of this means. I want you all to pray for me on my journey. I think it's an important journey. You see, I've talked about it, tried to practice it, preached about it, etc. Attending men's conferences, preaching and teaching at men's conferences, walking with one of my mentors, Dr. Edward Lewis Cole. But I will tell you, the culmination of it all came in that hotel room when I saw a deep wound in our nation in our families, in our communities. And that's real. And it's not just for the young boys, but the young girls. Because there's a lot of damage when a young girl grows up without a father. He is the first male figure in her life by which she's going to judge all other male figures in her life. I tell my sons, date your daughters before other guys do. Take them out. Show them the way it's supposed to be. Let them know. Set the standard and set it high. Because too many of our sisters are broken and wounded, not understanding why. But if you go back to the relationship with their father or the lack thereof, 
You understand? You see, family is the first community. Well, the second community. The first community was Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Unity in diversity. But that was the first community. And out of that community, he established, God established what we understand as family. The very institution that's under attack, under assault. No wonder we need the church to be here as salt and light, as the pillar and ground for truth, as a preserver of ways to walk in. And no wonder we're under attack. Let me go into what I want to sh share with you today. Oh, we're out of time? We're still good? Hello, team, staff, people. Okay, so that's still counting down. Two Sundays ago, we left off with the word occupy. How many remember? Occupy. I shared with you how Jesus, on his way to Jerusalem, knowing what he's about to face, he'll be arrested. Well, first he's going to be celebrated. But it will result in his arrest. A trial, which Isaiah the prophet calls the perversion of justice, that led him to the cross. His death and his resurrection. We will celebrate his triumphal entry into Jerusalem in a few weeks. It's called Palm Sunday. But before he got to Jerusalem, he stopped in Jericho. And on the outskirts of Jericho, you know he meets the blind man, right? The blind beggar. This is Luke chapter 18 and 19. I'll walk you through it. But he meets the blind beggar. And he encounters him and he brings healing to him. Right? Now, you know the background. I'm just reviewing it. Herod, who was king over Judea... He built a winter retreat in Jericho. Jericho was a place where all of the power elite would gather. It was a doorway. Its history was one of I'm going to remember when the two spies were sent in Right? And Rahab harbored the two spies. Remember? There was an assault about to be made on Jericho and the walls of Jericho. So Jericho was a place where these two spies were harbored by Rahab. Jericho was also the place where Elijah the prophet was lifted up 
by a fiery chariot. How many remember that? At least that's how they described it. It was the first city that the Israelites conquered going into the promised land. So Jericho has a history there. But at the time that Jesus is walking into it, it's a place of beauty, power, wealth. But he stops first on the outskirts to meet with the blind man. And of course, we know the scripture is by design. How many believe the scripture is by design? So when we read something, we have to ask, okay, why did he do that? Why did that happen? And of course, I shared with you that the blind man on the outskirts, waiting for the rich and powerful to pass by, he set up shop to what? To beg. That's how he made a living. In fact, the better you, at, you, the better you were at working the system, the better you lived. Come on, we have people today who work the system. Some of them wear three-piece suits. <laughs> but he learned how to work the system. The rich and powerful were coming by. He knew that his only opportunity to encounter them, right, would be on the outskirts. Because they're not going to pay attention to him in the seat of power. They're not going to pay attention to him inside the city. So he dealt. He, he was there. And he hears Jesus is coming by. And, of course, Jesus has an entourage with him, his disciples. And, and, he's, and he starts crying out, Jesus, son of David, which means he is applying to Jesus his messianic title. That I may receive my sight. And of course, they told him, shut up. And he cried louder. And sometimes, you know, you got to pray louder when people are trying to shut you down. And Jesus stops, approaches the man, and he asks him, what do you want? That I may receive my sight. And Jesus heals him. Your faith has made you whole. Now, of course, I shared with you that that was not the end. Because to open a man's eyes is now to take away his livelihood. Listen, folks, some answers to prayer have unintended consequences. Like when you prayed for a husband and you got one. Don't raise your hand, but how many discovered some unintended consequences? So don't think for one minute that one answer to your prayer solves everything. No, sometimes answered prayer creates new problems. So the man now, he could see. The blindness at least afforded him the empathy of the rich and powerful as they pass by. But now he can see. What are they going to say to him? Get a job. <laughs> the same thing we say in our society. But people that we don't give opportunity to because we feel that they're not handicapped, even we don't 
understand their cultural or social context. Get a job. So he's got to now relearn the system. He's got to find out. I got to change the way I beg. <laughs> Turn your neighbor and say, he's preaching about somebody you know. <laughs> How many know beggars come in all forms, types, sizes, proximities? But Jesus didn't leave the man there with new eyesight. Jesus goes into the city, meets up with Zacchaeus, who is a tax collector, the chief tax collector, customs, right, officer. And he spends an evening with him, so impacting him internally that it caused a radical redistribution of wealth within Jericho. Read the story, Luke 19. The man was so impacted by Jesus that, that, he, that he said, I'm going to give half of what I have to the poor. And if I stole anything, you know, sometimes it takes a process for <laughs> you to really come to the truth. What do you mean if? He's been stealing from them all along. What do you mean if? But if I've stolen anything from everyone, I'm going to return it to them fourfold. And he's reaching back into the Old Testament law as to what you do when you have stolen and how you should give reparations. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't say that. I didn't say that. I said it, but I didn't say it. But how you should make better what was made bad by your decisions and your choices and your expectations. So Jesus dealt with the poor man who was struggling, but he also dealt with the systems and structures and the power brokers who create and perpetuate conditions that create that poor man. Are you all hearing me today? See, you know, we, 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 we make God a genie in a box. Hold your Bible, rub it three times, he pops out. Your wish is my command. You have no idea some of the things that God has to put in order in order to answer your prayer. But I shared that with you. And I want to take you to Luke 19. Let's go to Luke 19. Verse 1 is where the story of Zacchaeus, Jesus' encounter with Zacchaeus begins. Let's go to verse 9. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this household. And I'm reading from the Amplified Bible because he too is a spiritual son of Abraham. And Jesus is telling this to his disciples because they objected to the fact that Jesus was interacting with this tax collector whom they considered a sinner. Jesus continues in verse 10, for the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Verse 11, are you there? 
All right? Amplified Bible, verse 11. Luke 19, 11. While they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a what? Parable. Why? All you need to see is the next word, because. So there's a reason he's giving this parable to them that we're about to read. There's a reason behind it. And we need to know the reason, right? Because he was what? Near Jerusalem. Well, why was that critical? Because he already told them that he was going to have to go to Jerusalem, suffer many things of the chief priests, the elders, the power structure. He's going to end up being crucified, arrested, crucified. But on the third day, he'll rise again. So he's reminding them, and he's near Jerusalem. And they assumed. Need I break down that word? You know what you do. <laughs> and they assumed that the, come on, kingdom of God. Come on, say it. The kingdom of God was going to appear when? Immediately. As soon as he reached the city. And please understand, because when he gets to the city... He comes riding on the back of a donkey, a baby donkey, a colt, fulfilling the words of the prophet saying, your king comes riding on the back of a colt. So he's fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies about Messiah. And what are the people doing? They're cutting palm branches, laying them in the way, and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, exactly what the blind man called him. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What is happening here? They're saying, this is him. This is it. Salvation is coming to Israel. He's going to overthrow the Roman government, power structure, liberate us, reestablish our independence as a kingdom. I'm trying. And free us to practice our religious belief system, to live our culture, to be the people of God. But it didn't work out that way. Because in order for that to happen, we have to leave out the arrest, the trial, the crucifixion, and the resurrection. And that's why when Jesus was telling his disciples that this is what has to take place, Jesus, Peter says to him, be it far from you, Lord. That's not gonna, we're not going to let that happen. And Jesus turns around and says, get behind me, Satan. Because there's some things that you are ordained to go through to get you to what you prayed for. See, there's no crown without a cross. There's no victory 
without conflict. So he stops in Jericho, has this meeting, and then he says to the disciples, he gives them a parable. Ready? Verse 12. So he said, a nobleman went to a what? I want you to look at his translation. Let's get it up on the screen. Verse 12. So he said to them, and why is he telling them this parable? Come on, TCC. Why is he telling them this parable? Why is he, why is he telling them this parable? Go back to verse 11. Why is he telling them this parable? I can't hear you. Why is he telling them this parable? Because they thought, they assumed that the kingdom of God would arrive immediately. This is why he told them this parable. So there's some things in this parable we need to be aware of. They thought it was going to happen overnight. They thought it was going to happen when he goes into Jerusalem. Contrary to being arrested and tried and, 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 and crucified. Contrary to that, no. He's going to use his miracle power. Remember, he can handle the economy because he can turn stones into bread. He can handle health care because he can heal people. Need I go through all the social issues and institutions? He is the man. And he had to back them up and say, holy, this ain't going to happen overnight. So he said, verse 12, a nobleman went to a, come on, I want you to catch the clues. To a what? To a what? To a distant country. King James language, a far country. Why, why do we find the words distant and the word far? It's a signal that it's going to take it's been 2,000 years. He was signaling that this is not going to happen overnight, people. There's some things that must take place first. My arrest, the mock trial, my crucifixion, my resurrection, all of that sets it in motion. But there's got to be a Pentecost. There's got to be a restructuring of society. The kingdom has to start in seed form and then grow into a large tree. Good and evil have to develop side by side in a duality and become more sophisticated as the world advances. The gospel has to be spread around the world and influence cultures and, and governments and, and political systems and structures. It's going to take what? Time. Time. So he called. 
Well, let's go back to verse 4. So he said, a nobleman went to a distant country to obtain for himself a what? Kingdom. Who's the nobleman? Come on. Jesus? He's talking of himself. A nobleman went to a distant country to obtain for himself a kingdom and then to what? Yeah, so right here we have the first advent. You know what advent means? It means the arrival of an important person. The first advent of Jesus was 2,000 years ago. He's coming back, which we call the second advent. Advent simply means the king has arrived. So let me, let me break it down for you this way. The first coming of Jesus inaugurated the kingdom. To inaugurate something means to bring about its beginning. So it inaugurated the kingdom. And that's why it was so important that at, at when he was uh, being baptized by John the Baptist, the heavens open, a voice speaks, this is my beloved son in whom I am what? Well, please, what was God the Father doing? Anointing his son to be king. And what was he going down into? The waters of baptism. What does the water symbolize? The world and its chaos. He was going to be covered by it. But then as you do in baptism, after you get wet under there, you what? It was all symbolic. So the first coming of Jesus inaugurates the kingdom of God. The second coming of Jesus will consummate the kingdom of God. So you have inauguration and consummation. To consummate something simply means to bring it to completion. But in between, those two advents would be a period of time. And during that period of time, let's go, verse 13. So he called 10 of his servants and gave them 10 minors, one piece each equal to about 100 days wages. And that's a lot of money back then. And said to them, do, said to them what? He said to them what? He said to them what? King James language, occupy until I come. Do business. I'm going to give you this window of time. And I want you to do business. What business was he talking about? Let me, let me summarize it with this statement. Maximizing our God-given gifts and God-given opportunities. That's what he means by doing business. Does that mean getting people saved, discipling people, building ministry? Absolutely. Does it mean getting involved in the culture and being an agent of change, salt and light? Absolutely. It means all of that. We're not here to wait for him to come back. Let me tell you something. When I got saved, I ended up in a Pentecostal church, and Jesus was coming in two weeks. What was there to do? Sit down and wait. That's why your theology, your eschatology, all of these things are important because they influence your choices. They influence your behavior. Why get involved? Why go to school? Why do anything if he's coming back next week? Come on. Are you with me, church? But he said, no, there's going to be a period of time. 
between my first coming, the inauguration of the kingdom, and the completion of the kingdom. Because certain things need to be set up. They need to be set up. Well, what does he do? So he called 10 of his, uh, verse 13, of his servants and gave them 10 minors, one piece each, equal to 100 days wages, and said to them, do business with this until I return. He gave them something of value, right? And he said, now do something with that value. Did you hear what I just said? God gives us something of what? Value. And then expects us to do something with that value. And when he comes back, what's his question? How did you do? And then he can respond, well done. But if you didn't do squat diddly. And boy, we could talk about Paul's perspective on that. He expects you to do something with the value he's given you. And everyone has value. Your value begins with the image of God. That's where it begins. So he called his ten servants and gave them ten minors. All right, let's go to verse 14. But his citizens, the residents of his new kingdom, all right? <laughs> That's interesting because he's talking about the world, all right? All of humanity doesn't want his leadership. They will reject his leadership. Hated him and sent the delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to be a king over us. And I love verse 15. When he returned after receiving the kingdom, which means he became king anyway, Are y'all walking with me? He returns not to the individuals who rejected him. He returns to those who gave, he gave value to. To find out what they did with the value he gave them. And you're going to do two, you're going to do one of three things, right? Now, two of two things, right? One of two things, rather. One of two things. You're either going to take it and multiply it. Or you're going to take it and bury it. Come on. You know the parable of the talents. Right? One man doubled it. Five into ten. The other man doubled it. Two to four. And the third man did what? He buried it. So. Ah, boy, we're, we're out of time, really out of time. Okay, <laughs> I appreciate the permission. Permission. The dual development of good and evil. And I want to talk to you about, remember, the parable of the wheat and the tear. He sowed what? Come on. Good seed in the field, which is the world. Not the church. The world. And the enemy came and sowed weeds or tear among the wheat. So this would be a period marked by God creating and the devil imitating. And his imitations will always be a perversion of the real that was created by God. So the questions come to us now. How do we occupy 
First, we have to understand what he did, what he does during this period with evil. What is God doing with evil during this period as it relates to humanity, but especially as it relates to his children, his people, the church? Because if we don't understand that, then we can give evil too much credit. Evil did not decide to not pay your light bill and your lights got cut off. Don't tell me about the devil being busy. Let's talk about you not managing your finances. So we got to put evil in perspective, folks, in order for us to truly occupy. How many are ready to occupy? He wants us to learn, grow, and contribute. I've got to stop here. Did you get anything out of this today? And thank you for bearing with me on that father wound. It's just something that's burning inside of me. And having my, four of my sons sitting here looking at me in the face today, it inspired the reality of that brokenness that we experience as a society. And I want to unpack that brokenness so we can understand that as well. Come on, let's all stand. The journey of occupation begins with reconciliation. Reconciliation is made possible through grace and repentance. Our minister is going to come share with you some words to that end, and especially those of you who may be joining us, and forgive me for not welcoming you and greeting you today, but those of you who may be joining us by way of internet. Minister Misha. We close every service by saying that Jesus is Lord. We can't do that without giving someone the opportunity to make him Lord. Whether grief or joy or love or growth, we each experience life differently. Arkel pointed us to the process of tragedy birthing purpose and hardship birthing stewardship, becoming a boss after loss. We gain in our pain the opportunity to turn that pain to power, but to whom much is given, much is required. Once we have power, we need to take care how we use it. Whether in the natural or the spirit, fatherhood is a sacred trust. Most of us carry father wounds, whether from the fathers who were absent or those who were present. And those who step up to take this mantle carry a heavy weight because only God is a perfect father. But we understandably will look to our fathers to lead us, to build us, to affirm us, and not to cripple us, crush us, or abandon us. None of us have arrived, but all of us are accountable to God and the people who love us. Change is not an event. It's a process. And none of us will ever be beyond the need of God's grace. Someone needs to hear that today. We can teach our sons to be men and teach our daughters to be women made in his image and likeness and deserving of dishonor from nobody or wound them so badly that they engage in and accept abuse, still chasing the love and approval and honor we withheld. Here's some good news. God frees us. But his methodology is not the one we expect. We want a parade. He brings an execution. The truth is our unearned suffering is redemptive. 
Without a cross, there is no crown. But there is a crown. And God wastes no pain, no tear, and no trial in building us. And while we are going through our trials, God keeps giving us things of value and expecting we will do something with them. He gives us the opportunity to build, even broken as we are, and that yeah. is good news. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. The good news is that a holy God so loved a rebellious world that he sent his only begotten son to live a sinless life, die in our place, and rise from the grave, conquering death. And in doing so, he paid the price for our sin and gives us a right to everlasting life. The good news is that answered prayer may create new problems, but these are the problems we need to have. The good news is that God can transform both systems and structures and the individuals who occupy them. The good news is that Jesus knows all about your sin and comes to your house anyway. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Romans 10.9 that if, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So with every head bowed and every eye closed, if you've never made Jesus the Lord of your life and you'd like to, I'd like to pray for you. I'm just going to ask you to raise your hand. If you walked with God and walked away, I'm talking to you. All you need to do is raise your hand. And if you are feeling God's call out upon the water, out into uncertain territory, out into a new work, I'm talking to you too. Just raise your hand. And if you raised your hand, I'm going to ask you to take a step of faith. Come down to this altar. The altar is the place of exchange so that we, the church, can pray for you together. Hallelujah. Beloved, let us applaud them. Let us encourage them as they come. And let us recognize that this moment testifies to the power of God's purpose in our life to overcome everything that came against us. You may have been pressed down by trial. We may have been crushed by disappointment. We may have been hurt by people. We may have been hurt by our own expectations. But God has been with us every step of the way. We need to come into agreement in this moment to be giving God praise for the fact that every person coming to this altar right now rec represents the persistence of the human spirit, represents tenacity, represents a yeah, refusal yeah. to quit, a refusal to die, a refusal to be defeated. I don't know what you brought into this place this this morning some of us ran in some of us leapt in but some of us had to crawl here and if that was you today this is the moment where you can start something new this is the moment where beloved you may be to come to this altar right now you may be born again and you may need to come to this altar right now because there's a burden that you need to lay down because you're dealing with a you're dealing with a fear you're dealing with a sadness you're dealing with a with a depression you're dealing with something that's too big for you to handle but nothing is too big for God so i just want to encourage somebody today get over your pride get over your shame Get over your fear. Get over the fact that your, your expectation that your neighbor is looking cross that out at you. You know what? They probably are. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. This moment is between you and God. And God is in control. And he's been in control. And he will be in control. And he'll be with you in the midnight hour. After all of us have gone home, and it's just you and him, he'll be there. Yeah. That's what this moment affirms, and that's where you have the opportunity to Hallelujah. say yes to what God is doing in this moment in your life. Let us praise God and praise Him some more.
So we are here at the altar with a thousand different needs, but one almighty God. So whatever you came for, whatever you're believing God for, whatever you're about to enter into, I'm going to ask you to pray this one prayer. Father, Father, thank you. Thank you. For this opportunity. For this opportunity. To receive. To receive. Your love. Your love. I repent. I repent. Of my sin. Of my sin. I believe. I believe. Christ died on the cross. Christ died on the cross. To pay the price. To pay the price. For my sin. For my sin. And rose again. And rose again. Conquering death. Conquering death. I confess him. I confess him. As Lord. As Lord. And Savior. And Savior. And your word says. And your word says. I'm born again. I'm born again. Thank you. Thank you. For grace. For grace. And mercy. And mercy. Thank you. Thank you. That no matter. That no matter. How many times I fall. How many times I fall. I can get back up. I can get back up. If I confess. If I confess. You will wash me clean. You will wash me clean. Today. I will walk by faith. I will walk by faith. And not by sight. And not by sight. Order my steps. Order my steps. Guide my feet. Guide my feet. I pray. I pray. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's give God praise. And amen. Hallelujah. Those of you standing at the altar, please remain there. Minister Misha, give instructions, please. Family, we believe if you prayed those prayers. If you prayed that prayer, you are born again, you are beginning the process of restoration, and you are ready to take new steps in the work. But change, as is often said here, is not an event. It's a process. Wherever you are in this walk, I need you to do four things. One, begin to study the Word. Two, get in a Bible teaching church. Three, tell someone about the decision that you made today. And four, and, and, and in this season, this one may be the most important because it's, 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 it's the most insidious. Keep showing up. Keep yeah, coming yeah. here. Keep tuning yeah. in. Keep opening your Bible. Keep gathering with the saints when you don't want to, when you feel tired, when you feel alienated. That, that thing that, that pastor said, you become a member. The, your membership happens when you're offended and you would leave, but you choose to come back. And you'll have many, many, many opportunities because people are people to leave. The miracle happens when you come back. Praise the Lord. And now I just invite you. I'm just going to ask you to turn around because we have some people who've been waiting for you and praying for you. And they just want to take this moment to celebrate the decision that you made today, to celebrate this next season of your life, to celebrate. We don't know where God is taking you, but God knows where he's taking you. And we celebrate this moment with you. If you're watching online, please call or text the number on the screen. May God continue to bless you. Your life will never be the same. Amen. Come on, let's give God a good hand. Clap offering. Clap your hands, all ye people, people of the Lord. Shout unto God with the voice of triumph. 
Let me close with this. And thank you, because we went over time, and I've got a note. Ah, so you can get R. Kell's book. It will be sold today in the Vision Hall, and she's going to be there. She didn't notice. She's going to be there to sign the book for you. She just discovered that. That's the, you know, you have children, you can boss them around. So listen, listen, I cannot tell you how many times I struggled to get something to work only to discover it wasn't plugged in. Take that home with you. Think about it. Let's say something good as to leave this place, but never God's presence. Jesus is Lord, period. We believe it, we proclaim it, and we're seeing it come to pass. God bless you. We love you. Have a wonderful week in the Lord. Thanks for tuning in to the A.R. Bernard podcast. I hope you were enriched by the information and or the conversation. Make sure subscribe by clicking the link in the bio to gain more information about me and the work that I'm doing. Again, thank you and God bless.